todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Adam Steiner, the author of a comprehensive and scholarly work called Darker with the Dawn, Nick Cave's Songs of Love and Death. He's also written books about David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails. Adam's going to give us a deep dive into his process and also further insight to Nick Cave as a songwriter, solo artist, and band member of The Birthday Party. Let's get Adam on the phone. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I read your book. It's quite the scholarly uh, deep dive into Nick Cave's music. And I'm wondering if you can provide some background on what inspired you to write it. Ah, great question. Um, basically, uh, I've, I've been a fan of uh, Nick Cave's music for a long time. And... Um, it was one of those things where I'd written a book about Nine Inch Nails. I was uh, jamming around in my head, thinking about maybe doing one on David Bowie. And I thought, well, Nick Cave's a really interesting guy. And um, there's hardly anything out there. There was um, a very good book that ended in, I think, 1994, around the time of Let Love In album. Uh, and it, you know, there's nothing up, up to date on all the albums that he and the Bad Seeds have done since. So it wasn't so much um, a gap in the market as more like perhaps writing from the perspective of my generation who came to Nick Cave, obviously later, uh, and through like a patchwork of different albums, maybe jumping into the early 80s stuff, maybe something like Let Love In um, or The Boatman's Call, or, um, you know, some of the slightly later records like uh, Abattoir Blues, and then things like Push the Skyway, which is a whole new sound and influence and uh yeah generation of fans so that's where i came from and i i just thought well there really needs to be a book that firstly brings things up to date but also talks perhaps a little bit more about um all the different themes that cave has reached out into 
you know, since the, the mid 90s, basically. Now, what aspects of Nick Cave's life and work compelled you to explore them in a book? Because I feel like he is one of the few last vestiges of an enigmatic or mysterious performer. You know, he's not on TikTok and all that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that's that's good. It makes me think. Um, I yeah. In, in response to that, it's it's the making you think that perhaps marks him out, as you say. Like he's not um, driven by um, social media and even like internet culture, you know, which wasn't really so much around for the first portion of his career. Um, and I think what that gives you the excuse to do with someone like Cave is to be uh, a little bit more scholarly in an old-fashioned sense um I, I use you know obviously like anyone these days i use a lot of internet research i got some great advice a while ago um from another writer who said don't just you know you can't just google everything and then put it into a book and rephrase it it has to be something original that comes from you and your experience with the music and what makes you passionate about things but also with someone like cave he's such a, a literary um guy both as a reader personally and then what he puts into the songs and as i mentioned in the book it stems from things like um you know, very classical stuff the bible um and greek myth and then you know a lot of like classic 20th century literature which he reads when you look through his um you know his rough kind of book lists he reads really broadly and quite widely uh and lots of different kinds of writers and they pop up in interesting ways through his work so aside from listening to the records and scanning through lyrics um, and just really embedding myself in his work in, as a thing in itself, um, I really appreciated his um, his bookish side, <laughs> which is, you know, quite different <laughs> yeah. from um, the rock and roll God thing that um, he struts about on stage. And, you know, those can, those can all be aspects of the man, the person, and then uh, exacerbated or inflated, however you want to say it, by the persona. But... Um, yeah, he, he does fulfill a really unique position. And I think personally, without trying to show my age too much, 38, I, I think he he really fulfills that slightly older generation of the, the self-taught autodidact who probably didn't go to university, read things that they were passionate about, that engaged them, that challenged them, especially books of ideas um, that makes them really stand out. A bit like, you know, someone like David Bowie. Uh, and you feel that come through in the music. And I think, not that, you know, modern musicians don't read and stuff. I, I wouldn't want to be, like, so arrogant. But I, I just feel that people who really steep themselves in other kinds of influences that aren't just musical, art, books, broader culture, I suppose you could say, I, I think that really shines through more in the music. Yes, I agree with you on that. And you talked a little bit about your research process um did that also lead you to read some of the books that he loves or view some of the artwork that he's inspired by uh yes absolutely as to the books it was easy and extremely enjoyable the artwork a little bit more challenging because um a lot of the things he references and i, I highlight some of this very specifically in the book but taking a direct lead from cave is rooted in i, I guess you'd call it renaissance most of the works like Renaissance um, pieces around scenes from the Bible. So, you know, back then it was a lot of people illustrating either a figure in a, in a, in a statue or a painting of a scene from the Bible. So telling the story 
um, mm-hmm. hyper visually. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, even in those paintings, it, it's not necessarily my thing. I'm more of like a, you know, more modern Francis Bacon man. But I mean, there's a lot of drama. There's a, a strong sense of like scene setting and a degree of underlying narrative tension, which, you know, all kind of comes through in his songs. So you can see where those things speak to him. And then I guess also Cave talks so much, especially recently, which he didn't used to so much, you know, when he was younger, it was always kind of slightly, I think, slightly submerged. But he talks so much more now about his spirituality and his his very specific um, religious beliefs, you know, which extend to a belief in God and higher power and spiritual, not spiritual forces, but I think maybe, you know, spiritual um, resonances, but not to the extent that he would want to go out there and proclaim himself a Christian. He's a unique figure in that sense, because he's always dodged, um, you know, the dead weight of Christian rock, um, which we're all thankful for. You, to- you two kind of got away with it, but I think they shoehorn in actually a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't need to be there. But as for the rest, um, he's, he's great at that. So I, I was happy to like read through passages of the Bible from the way Cave interprets it as um, a spiritual but also poetic text, like great use of language. You know, it's very common, straight verse. Poetry, another thing that really resonates with me anyway. And then just going over certain books that I was always kind of keen to read. The shining example for me would be um, the late Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Um, oh, okay, yep, that's on my shelf. I haven't read it oh. yet, but yeah, I really <laughs> want to. It's great. It's it's genuinely a page turner. Like what I what really blows my mind is like how people call this off the literary page turner. You know, I think that's what so many of us who I guess you could say are serious um, about books and stuff are always kind of aiming for. You know, you want that sweet crossover um, between touching on bigger, heavier things in a confrontational, striking way. But people are also like, fuck, I couldn't put it down. And like, I kept turning you know, I kept turning more pages, like, this is a great story. And I, I just loved it. I was on holiday in a cottage in the countryside. And um, yeah, my, my partner and my daughter went off for a little while to do, like, watercolour painting of the river. I was like, yeah, 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 go paint that river, go paint the river. <laughs> and I was reading my, like, you know, um, Rivers of Blood in the Desert um, book. It was, it was brilliant. So I could see how he really fed off of that language and those ideas and those imagery. And that, you know, for a long time, that was kind of his world somewhat the sort of um wild westy thing transfused through visions of the outback um in australia um so yeah that was that was like its own little like you know bookish adventure which um enabled me to you know geek out that little bit further yeah well it seems to me that that book may have been provided some inspiration or foundation for one of my favorite quote-unquote westerns the proposition uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I was really hoping that he would come and do the press junket because I was working as an entertainment reporter then. But unfortunately, he did not come to L.A. for that. And he he can be somewhat uh, elusive with the press. So I'm wondering if you've ever interviewed Nick or even met him. Uh, no, no, I haven't. I've seen him live um, literally like a couple of times on the more the more recent shows. My maybe this will come up later, but my my sort of like how I came about discovering Nick Cave and the Bad Seas music is sort of interesting and a bit stilted. So it's really weird that I came to write a book about him, but I became a really intense fan the more I learned and the more I determined like 
which records really, really spoke to me and touched me and were things that I could really live around. I know there's not so much, which I think is a really important thing, like to be a fan, you don't have to be a super fan. But in terms of engagement with Cave, um, no, it, it never really came up. I I thought about speaking to, you know, people like Mick Harvey and Warren Ellis, and they're all at, you know, different stages now of their careers in relation to um, their work with Nick. You know, Mick Harvey worked with Cave through almost everything he's done with the Bad Seeds and the birthday party and the rest. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost a no-brainer. But um, when I started to look into it, I kind of personally, I kind of felt I didn't need it because I was going more off of the songs themselves, which I, I find really comforting because it's always like the that's the real source material as opposed to the person and what they think about the song or what they were doing when they made it and um, their interpretation. Because I think Kay's one of those great artists where he says, oh, once the song's out there, it's kind of your fucking thing. And you could say like, you know, oh, this was, for me, this was Jellyfish and Eels. And they'll be like, yeah, I, the, the song was called Mermaid. You know, the clue is in the title. But, you know, people can get their own, um, who can get their own thing from it. And he's really, I think it's more like a, a, a definition of a really good artist is that they're generous and open-minded enough to let people have their own thing with it. But I, I you know, I, I brushed up um, against the organisation briefly. Um, I got the sense Cave, he's Cave to me, not, you know, Nick, Mr. Cave. Um, I, I got the sense, you know, he wasn't so keen to be involved i he'd he'd done his own book you know faith hope and carnage i don't think he's so keen to dwell too much on the past not through um you know not through regret or anything but i think like like any artist he's looking forwards he's always looking to the next thing and you know that everyone's waiting with really crazy baited breath for the next bad seeds album which I'm, i'm really you know i'm really curious to hear but i'm not necessarily hanging on to just because there's you know, there's other stuff and I'm, I'm still listening to, you know, other parts of his music. I don't necessarily need a new Bad Seeds album. And I, I think sometimes people are perhaps looking for those things as if it will answer something. The big hanging question for lots of people is, will the Bad Seeds go back to their old style or what they were before or more rock and roll? And I get all of that. And it would be really fun to hear like a really distorted guitar, um, intense album. But maybe Cave isn't that person. And maybe if he tried to do that, it would just be offering what he thinks people want. And the idea of like recapturing past glories, it doesn't strike me as someone who's quite, you know, evolutionary and progressive as Nick Cave. It doesn't strike me as something he would do just to try and please people. Because, right. you know, what's the point of that? But yeah, sorry, so to go back to your question. Um, no, Cave, Cave wasn't really involved. And I, in the end, I didn't really end up speaking to anyone. Whereas um, my other project, my David Bowie bomb, where David Bowie is obviously absent from this world, um, but not entirely ever absent. Yeah, um, this is you, true. Know, you know, I, I spoke to lots of different people at all different kinds of stages uh, around, you know, 1980 when he was doing Scary Monsters. So that was really fun because it was like lots of little snippets of information. I was able to like drag through really cool little bits of information. Whereas Cave, I think because the sort of the story is ongoing, the people that are close to him don't necessarily want to speak out of turn and and jump back to other albums than what they're doing now like cave and otherwise you know mick harvey he's a he's a very successful accomplished um solo musician himself so in many respects i think people felt their individual narrative or story wasn't done uh, and there wasn't really perhaps much they could tell me 
that wasn't already out there. Like I say, the key thing is always to return to the records. And I, I had so much fun um, doing my online research, going through interviews. There's so much uh, interview material with Nick Cave. And then obviously um, going through uh, those books that I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I had a really great time. So in some respects, I was actually overwhelmed in the end. And I, I don't know what I necessarily would have got out of interviews with the other musicians, you know, because I think I would have always been dancing around Cave himself. Mm. Right. And I think that for the casual Nick Cave fan, maybe like me, I love him, but, you know, like the uh, murder ballads <laughs> is my sweet spot for, for his music. And I feel like, oh, wow. yeah, like a lot of people that know one or two songs, they don't realize how prolific he is, especially until you dive into your book. So um, from your perspective, how do you see his music evolving over the course of his career? And how did you approach capturing that feel in your book? In broad strokes, Cave went through that thing that a lot of people have um, in the early stages of being in a couple of bands um, in, in succession before kind of finding their feet, so to speak. So The Boys Next Door, obviously, um, which is not, you know, it's not something I would necessarily brush aside, but it's not what's important to me as a listener and a fan. Mm -hmm. um, and then The Birthday Party, which I really enjoy, really interesting. And I, I love this, like, alternative universe where, you know, The <laughs> Birthday Party kind of broke up and burnt out and crashed out and, and there was never heard from again and so on. And Cave and Mary up 20 years later and make a an acoustic album in a, in a shack out in the outback or something. But that, that wasn't the way it went. And I love that thing where, you know, it came from this really intense, savage, uh, experimental post-punk thing from Australia um, mm -hmm. and with a really unique guitarist in Roland S. Howard. You know, everyone, um, the recent like documentary Mutiny about the birthday party um, really hammers that home. But also the fact it was a band of individuals. Um, Mick Harvey, as ever, always brings really cool, really interesting stuff. He's always kind of the silent partner of, of the records. And so I really admire him for that. Um, and then Tracy Pugh was, you know, the, the rock and roll heart and soul of um, the band and really heavy, you know, really heavy, um, lurching, doom-laden bass playing. Um, and Phil Calvert there backing them up, um, who later joined the Psychedelic Furs, which is cute. So, you know, going from that, and then becoming the bad seeds, there was there was quite a, I think there was almost like a stride over, you know, it was a very similar kind of style initially of um, broken down, relatively long, drawn out songs, you know, like um, the first album uh, from Her to Eternity has like uh, a box for Black Paul, which is you know, like, a, to me, personally, kind of like a 10 minute dirge. I know some people really like it, but it's so drawn out. But it's cave like, you know, sitting there at the piano, sort of. In, in front of people learning to be a singer-songwriter type figure within a band unit, which, you know, it had some really strong people come in and out of the lineup over the years and really changed that sound. In, you know, Mick Harvey, always there at the core. Someone like Blixer Bargeld, um, Thomas Weidler as a drummer, I really enjoy. Um, jazzy, very tight, very light. Um, and then more recently, like Jim Sklavunos, um, who's more your, like, powerful heavy hitter rock drummer so you know having two drummers that's that's pretty um two very different drummers that's pretty cool that's pretty fun and obviously like more recently warren ellis although you know he basically became a part of the band in 94 which for many people is still like a classic era mm. um of the bad seeds so i kind of saw it as they they had this like 
really broken down, almost experimental, expressionist kind of band thing where it was a bunch of people in the room, sometimes kind of just hitting the instruments, going for like, um, you know, noise, concrete sound experiments, um, taking the guts out of a piano and, and bashing out something like the carny. And then, and then obviously taking that, and then some really strong songwriting early on with things like um, Stranger Than Kindness, which is mostly, you know, Blixer Bargeld and um, Anita Lane's lyrics, really well sung by Cave. It was a standout thing for me. Um, and Your Funeral, My Trial album. And then like moving into the 90s and like much more melodic, um, the piano is kind of more dominant and all over things. And then 97, Cave gets swept into, you know, just after the success of the Mobiles, Cave gets swept into the um, singer-songwriter figure. And that album is very much dominated by him and I guess his his lyrics and his um, his emotional situation. And the band continue from there and they do like, you know, much more bigger rocking albums. I love Abattoir Blues and Lyra of Orpheus, um, full of like really great, like more like ballady songs and then really rocking out songs, really great guitar and really intense sounds. And then just becomes so much more experimental towards, um, you know, Push the Sky Away, Skeleton Tree and then Ghostine, which is once again, an album that kind of eschewed the, a lot of the Bad Seeds involvement. They're really there on, on Skeleton Tree for me. Really tight, really dense, really rhythmic, um, really haunting. And then Ghostine is much more about Cave and Warren Ellis. Um, very synth heavy and, and you know, not really much drums. So I, I really love that mad transition. A lot of us who love music, who immerse ourselves in music and lyrics, sometimes they feel like the artist is speaking to us or we resonate with a certain point in our lives with some songs and albums. And I'm wondering if there's anything of Nick Cave's that has resonated with you personally on that level. Yeah, I'm going to answer that with um, not another question, <laughs> but um, I'm going to answer that with um, a faint to the side. Uh, for me, I, 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 yeah, I totally get that that sensation and like the universalizability of um, music is, you know, it's one of the great things about it. And you can just hear a song without any preconceptions or background knowledge, all of what you might just call baggage to be blunt. Um, and it doesn't take you any effort. You just get to sit there and experience it and like bathe in the aura of it, you know, the sonics and everything. So we all have that individually, relatively, and I hope we all have it at certain points, as you say, with like a really deep, um, powerful intensity. Broadly speaking, for me, I, I do think like something like uh, Stranger Than Kindness as a song or even um, the title track from that album, um, Your Funeral, My Trial, a really straightforward, almost basic song, like a like a drunken waltz. But I just get caught up in the the sort of emotional sway of it. And it's like, it's melancholy verging on outright sad, but it's not like completely defeatist. And then um, the big album for me, as I mentioned earlier, was like um, Push the Sky Away because it was so, it was so like broad and the songs didn't always feel like they had to be songs with a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, leading off towards an inevitable outro. Some of them were really ascendant, you know, things like Push the Sky Away and um Jubilee Street ended up like these powerful rising things. Other songs almost seemed to like kind of fizzle out, but they said everything they needed to say really succinctly, almost like a pop song, which is not always one of Cave's strengths, you know, um, um, brevity. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really like the fact it was a really immediate album. 
and I think it really touched like a whole new kind of generation to then like look back at his other songs because it had really great examples of songwriting that touched upon major cave themes and then something like skeleton tree was really affecting for me I think for a lot of people because it was that weird record where a lot of it was recorded before um you know the the tragic death of cave's son Arthur but that weirdly seemed to overshadow the record itself and I'm sure it deeply affected Cave in trying to finish and push through the album partly as an act of self-preservation it seems but also in doing justice to the songs you know he really believes in music as a as a as a thing in our lives as a force I suppose you could say in our lives um, and for him as a songwriter that's part of what he does it's part of his being and I think you feel that the album is quite melancholy and brittle and um, overshadowed by a kind of gloom anyway. But what I liked about it was that it had this really powerful, strong um, undercurrent of instrumentation, really great drumming, um, you know, really abstract kind of bass and guitars and stuff. Everything was really tweaked. It was really experimental. It was really unsettling like it was supposed to be. But then, um, a really straightforward, what you might call a really straightforward track like um, I Need You, you know, it's it's almost like a, it's basically sung like a direct address to uh, Cave's wife, Susie. You just feel that in your own life where you have a, a special person who you rely upon and you often find yourself needing and then needing you in return. Um, yeah, that, that kind of thing really resonated with me. So there was some, there was the fact that he could like have a really straight song within that really challenging album um i think speaks to some of that versatility and and yeah that that's why i enjoyed you know it's it's never all doom and gloom it's never all anarchic it's never all rock and roll and i think some of the other albums i guess because cave was a younger less experienced musician perhaps person um he didn't have uh, quite that emotional range that mm. a more mature mm -hmm. person has so yeah, I love that. I love that in some of those, um, yeah, more recent albums. You touched on uh, his son Arthur passing away tragically, and then he lost another son in 2022, Jethro, mm -hmm. um, which is what it's covered in one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories books because there have been quite a number of musicians who've actually lost children. It's tragic, and I feel like it does affect their work. Um, is there any... Yeah. Um, song that you could maybe pinpoint or or something like that that you feel like it was a shift a paradigm shift because of that or has it just um been more broadly about his life since then I mean did he write a song about Arthur or is there anything in particular that you can point to oh good question um with with the caveat that I'm not necessarily I appreciate the question, I do, um, with the caveat that I'm not necessarily fit to speak on this. Um, what When I was talking about, you know, the loss of Arthur in particular, just because it was Cave's 15-year-old um, son, you know, one, one of two twins who um, were part of what you might call his um, newer, more recent settled family life in Brighton that he'd established and mm -hmm. seemed to give him a lot of stability and happiness. I I lent a lot on what Cave did say 
in quite recent interviews, you know, literally like the last um, year or two, talking not so much about the loss, but um, where and how he continued making music and the choices he made in deciding to do things or not do them. So in terms of that, I, I in the book, I quoted a lot from Cave's own observations and his experience, his direct experiences, rather than me trying to jump off of that and analyse it too much. I mean, um, he kind of said, he kind of speaks about the Ghostine album quite metaphysically, and I think part of the reason it's so stripped back and what you might call bare is that he didn't need a band behind him. It was like musical backing for things that he wanted to express and, um, and explore. And so I, I really got a lot from Ghostine as a, as a whole record, as an album, and a, com- a complete suite of songs. Like, obviously, there's no, like, standout single or anything like that. It's not that kind of record. What I liked um, about it, that it, it he said it was for, of, and about Arthur. It was this all-encompassing kind of world unto itself. And I really appreciate that as a metaphor. And I struggled to find, I thought about writing more in depth on this in the book, I struggle to find an example of someone who'd done something so similar that also seemed um, quite selfless. It was it was exploring the the situation, but not necessarily from a place of outright regret or self pity or um, apology or guilt. I mean, Cave refers to some of those things in his book, but that's separate because that's in his book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage. And it's a different kind, literally a different kind of conversation. So the record, I think, for me, carries a lot of emotional weight that doesn't necessarily have to be overanalyzed or, or dissected or, or for, for the listener to try and transcribe it. But it really, like Skeleton Tree as well, which is perhaps the darker side to that record in some respects, to me, it really spoke to me about grief in general, um, but also like the the power of um, creation and and to some extent like the the light of uh, the light of experiencing the the growth and the birth and the growth and the development of a child and what that brings into your life. Obviously, you know that's not gonna that's my interpretation. I'm gonna resonate for everyone, but um, I felt I felt there was a lot of positivity and warmth on the album. That like when people have a funeral, for example, they tend they don't necessarily if they can say anything at all, they don't necessarily get up there and say bad things. They, all right. they talk, yeah, they talk about the sensations of being around the person and knowing them. And in and in terms of ghosting, there's the sense in which the person is in some way still present, still there. They live within you, through you, there's resonances. So I really that's what I got from that as an album. And it really helped me focus on um, aspects of grief. And then like people I know who have lost someone um, very close to them, how they might experience and how they might be feeling around it. And tracks like um, uh, Waiting For You really stood out for me. It's this, it's this metaphor of, you know, waiting for someone um, to arrive home, the very important um, on, on the next train. And it's intimated in the song that it's perhaps the figure of Susie 
you know in in that specific example but it, it kind of doesn't matter it's just that sensation that experience of um departures and arrivals and being reunited and stuff and that's like you know i found that really powerful and very sad uh, and and very difficult not to be difficult not to take the song and then reflect inward inwardly personally uh, with what cave was singing about so yeah I, I loved it as an album and other people just didn't get on with it and they were like let's get back to old classic nick cave and the bad seeds and, uh-huh. and, and i was like oh fuck me i just think they missed the point but then yeah. i have to like it i just think like how did you miss the point of what he was trying to do he is as as i mentioned before one of the more enigmatic performers very singular so mm. did you uncover any stories about what he was like to work with for other musicians or people, collaborators, how much does he impose of himself or did they, are they allowed to contribute? I mean, how does that work in his artistic world? My, from my, from my research and my reading, um, a lot of it, a lot of it came up that, you know, it's really weird. It's a really weird dynamic and, and it, it stands out more on things like Ghostine and the murder ballads. I'm sorry. Um, the Boatman's Call where the, the album, perhaps becomes more narrowly defined around Nick Cave and his universe. I think a pra- practical thing for me as a main consideration is just the way in which a lot of what Cave does is, and he said this for so many years, especially you know, when he got clean completely, sort of around like 2000, 2001, is that it was, it was him doing nine to five in his office, which was like down a, a flat or something down the road from his house in Brighton, sitting by the piano and, and pen and paper or reading, sitting there waiting for ideas to come, you know, all very important part of the process mm-hmm. and just working away all day trying to write songs and then bringing them to the studio. And not that the, not that the guys in the bad seas, it's like, right, wax some overdubs onto this, but presenting them with the songs and then finding ways to shape it. And so I think there's a really, from what I understood, there's a really dynamic process about how the songs finally get put together. You know, after the birthday party and Cave sort of came to the fore and, and came into himself as a as a front man and as a singer-songwriter and, um, you know, using the full versatility of the piano, which you don't get in many bands right. these days, especially, um, that he was sort of like, well, I've, I've got a basic song here and it's not that people need to come in and fix it or they'd be like, well, this, this is great. This is already the song, but it's how they can um, support him in developing it and changing it and adding to it. So my impression was that um, a lot of stuff would tend more recently to be around him and, and something he'd written. But then when they when the band talk about um, like a really positive time of like being in Paris uh, for just like, just a, I don't know, like two or three weeks or something. They record really fast as a rule, the sharp band doing the, you know, what basically became almost like a double album, like Avatar Blues, Live Orpheus. You know, they kind of just hammered out the songs and, and some of those takes are like, like um, live band, um, you know, live band recordings and stuff, which is really cool and, and lends a lot of like ferocity and excitement to the, the songs on, on, you know, on the album. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a kind of split there, but a, a lot of it seems to come from Cave as an individual and he's kind of leading the way, but they remain like a really tight 
band unit and he's always you know he's always very open he's very complimentary about like band shaping the sound otherwise it would be um like he recently did in america you know the solo tour for whatever i'm sure i'm sure it was cool but for whatever reason colin greenwood's there playing bass <laughs> which is fine um uh you know to, to lend it something yeah he's a great bassist i, I don't know how it went and, and how i how much he was able to put uh himself into the, the songs on stage but yeah it seems to be like a bit of a um a splintered dynamic but you know it those particular people that cave chooses to work with have really nailed down a specific sound you know especially someone like Blixer Bargeld and Mick Harvey always there laying really important stuff like like Mick Harvey building up the um the rhythmic loop for um something like the Mercy Seat it defines mm. the song it's great as a solo piano song as a studio recording it's fantastic and really strange and alien and out there and you know that in terms of like a ballady type song there's nothing quite like it and a lot of that was Mick Harvey sort of seeing it through because from what I read Cave is very strung out at the time so great lyric um and you know vocal performance but Mick Harvey seeing the song through as well I want to get into the visual of course people judge books by their covers and you have a beautiful <laughs> artwork on yours can you talk a little bit about um who did it and how it came about a really great artist called Johnny Nichols and uh, he's out there on Instagram. And I, I knew Johnny through bands of bands of bands. So oh, more okay. from like a rock and roll scene kind of thing. Johnny uh, does, I, I stumbled upon his website one time. I was like, I didn't know you drew, man. I didn't know you, you play guitar and sing and stuff. I didn't know you did drawing. And he's like, oh yeah, that's like my main passion. My main, um, my main artistic outlet is like, you know, almost um, not even illustration, but <clears throat> really dense, um accurate vivid portraits and obviously as a big music fan he paints a lot of um paints a lot of musicians yeah great work as, um, iconic yeah yeah um as well as iconic cultural figures like you know william s burroughs and people like that and um when i looked through his website i was like these are really good like there's lots of people and i say this with you know without any prejudice um there's lots of people fans you know, they like to draw their heroes. Um, they do a very good likeness. Um, here's Cave from 1997 from a poster. Here's Cave sort of um, from when I saw him live and I kind of got like a, tried to capture something of what I saw on stage. And, you know, they, they're really good. And it's like people love the artist so much and they happen to draw. They want to draw someone they, they're inspired by. It's great. Um, but Johnny has like, a really profound almost if I said draftsman like it would make it sound boring if it has like a draftsman's kind of eye of just intense accuracy and really strong proportion which is what you need when you're doing um you know uh strong figurative painting of an iconic figure so like he's David Bowie it's like from a certain era like era like um the late 70s you know he gets the cheekbones he gets the the difference in the pupils um, mm -hmm. the distended pupil from the accident um the hairline and things and the way in which the hair the hair sort of like is quite light and sort of waves to the side i was, I was a massive bowie fan obviously you can tell i looked at too many pictures of Doe bowie um as i waffle on but um johnny has like a yeah a really strong exactitude in his drawing line and he brought that to the cave thing but also i love his like um 
bloody scuffed up kind of fractured style to it all like it's coarse it's visceral so i thought um in in that particular piece that we used um for the cover that i asked johnny for permission um to license um that particular artwork that he'd done it was called the typist and it has cave like looming above his like iconic typewriter which you know he used for um you know most of his songs i don't think he's really much of a computer guy still um so i loved like that johnny had this sort of like metaphor of the typewriter at the bottom which we couldn't fit onto the book um and then caves really strong somewhat austere kind of gaze but also this really powerful um patina of like erosion and um yeah causticness which sort of captured some of the the sound and the spirit of the bad seeds as an entity so yeah johnny nichols um is the is the artist he's on instagram it's fantastic yeah it really draws you in and you know maybe if you didn't even know who nick cave is you'd be drawn to that cover and want to know more about what's inside the book and i'm wondering what what do you hope readers will take away from your book about nick cave after they've finished reading it oh wow um yeah oh gosh i guess mm, i guess what i tried to do <laughs> and i will answer the question i promise um <laughs> i guess what i tried to do was to um, give something of a fan's perspective, because I think that's really important. This is what I got from it as an individual. I loved Ghostine, other people didn't like it. Fine, I don't care, I'm not out for a fight, um, but they're wrong. And um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I loved like certain stuff from the earlier period and really strong stuff from the middle period. Um, it's such a strong, consistent discography. It's very hard to choose like top albums or to choose like a top 20 and so on of individual tracks. But um, I hope people would see like the, the individual passion as a fan who doesn't set out to like the most committed person, hasn't been to all the gigs, wasn't there from the start because, you know, wasn't born. Um, and um, also just someone who tried to like bring a bit of, uh, as, as you kindly said earlier, like a bit of scholarly interest of things not that I wanted to like lay it on academically mm -hmm. that I read every single thing around cave, but um, that I'd done really thorough research in the interviews and what I said in, um, in another interview about some of my other books, what interests me in writing is, is not trying to write the standard all encompassing biography. That would be really good. Um, and Mark Mordew, uh, the Australian writer, who did um, uh, the book Boy on Fire about Cave's early years um, is doing a really good job of that by speaking to, partly I think by virtue of being in Australia, but um, by speaking to lots of people that Cave knew very early time. I think he's going to end up writing the really seminal, all-encompassing book that tells the story of Cave's life and music. I was trying to look more at the major themes all across the songs as they are now. I think what you what I get from the songs is I get something of the psychopathology of the person as an artist. So I'm not out to tell the story of Nick Cave as a human being, um, whether he did certain things or didn't do them, whether he was nice, whether he was bad, et cetera, et cetera. 
those are all relevant and important but a lot of that can sometimes get um, bogged down in rock and roll mythology and and people love that stuff like i love those books i love i love deep searching rock and roll biographies um and and of writers as well you know the original rock stars but what i try to do is take how the artist is expressed through the songs and how that reflects back on them and so i hope people would like read the book and get something slightly different from it from what they might expect or what they might get from another book that is perhaps more source based or like an oral history or like nick was like this nick did that and and is more about like you know the music itself and what the music does and how it strikes you and how certain songs are really powerful something like tupelo which you know we can all agree is amazing um i think and uh you know red right hand yes things that just like really stand out and they 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 really stand up in the culture and persist and i think they will continue to do so they work around the individual artists obsessions their passions um the things that that trouble them that keep them up at night you know even down to like almost like visual visual motifs and stuff but like i said with the 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 title of the book um you know um cave songs of uh, love and death and implicitly within that loss but that wasn't something I wanted to focus on per se you know it's recurring things within his music um, you know love and, and death he's like classical but how he continues to revisit them as mm-hmm. he's not just grown older but like just had more experiences in life and his life has changed and that's the great thing about music like we can experience it the first time and it's so profound and so effective and that's to, for me that's the one that always stays with us when we first hear things and they really strike us but how we grow and change with it alongside the song which actually stays the same but it completely our experience completely alters the perception of the song so there's a disconnect there but it's one of the great powerful things about music you know songs you love music you don't really get bored of playing them you know you don't play them all the time necessarily but when you come back to them you're like oh my god i love this so much and it, you know, it reminds me, I haven't heard it for a couple of years, it reminds me how much I, I care about it and how much it means to me. So, yeah, I just wanted to give up one person's perception of that experience, but also um, trying to bring to bear more of the bigger ideas and influences that Cave has, um, you know, from his reading um, and obviously, you know, his uh, religious perspective as well. Yeah, it gives you a much more fuller and informed experience the next time you listen to certain songs or albums that you love by him um now you've also written books about nine inch nails and david bowie that you mentioned earlier um nick cave all those three artists trent Reznor, david bowie nick cave i feel like they're disparate in some way but also united in another way so i'm wondering what uh drew you to write about them and also who is your favorite artist out of those that you've covered in a book (laughs) that's a great question a good sting in the tail um (laughs) (laughs) but the right question um yeah um it's really weird so uh nine inch nails was another um I, i guess what you might call a more um current act because they were sort of coming up when i was a teenager but i i looked back and i you know i looked at um another album that I really love, um, The Holy Bible from 1994 by My Next Street Preachers. Definitely one of my favourite albums, with with a few of these other ones um, that we're talking about today, but um, definitely one of my favourite records. Welsh band that started out trying to combine, like, 
Public Enemy and Guns N' Roses, and then went completely off piece with the third album, completely anti-commercial, songs about the Holocaust, about political correctness, referencing like the in, implicitly referencing like the war in Bosnia at the time. And um uh yeah, they 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 did this mad, uh really intense, powerful, dark thing that just spoke to me so much as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um and I loved that album, but um there was there was a really good book came out on it and I was like, well, I can't do any better than what someone else has already done. It's like, you know, very much out of like respect, but also massive admiration and envy. Um, I stepped away from that kind of project and I was like, well, actually I, I'd love to write about the downward spiral because it's a, it's a, it's an adjacent album also from 94 that has like really powerful similar themes, but where um, the Holy Bible turns a lot of its moral and ethical judgment out against the world uh, as a corrupt and sinful place, uh, the downward spiral Trent Reznor really jumps back inwards and is very self-reflective and um, internally there's a lot of like inner voice judgment and it's a really intense claustrophobic kind of record but full of these huge amazing sounds and the production is just so good it's such a powerful um, sonic record and then on the um, 27 2017 remaster on the LP it's on it's on two records um, so it's really like high deep fidelity and so I loved that that craftsman's approach that Trent Reznor takes to things and from 94 when so many other things sounded like actually relatively kind of flat monotone a bit shit and you know distorted guitars alt rock fine he's he's always been amazing at that from the very start I wrote about that and that was a really fun interesting process I spoke to lots of people once again like around Nine Inch Nails but not Trent himself um, again he was doing you know, even then he was doing like really interesting current stuff. So the idea of looking back 20 years to what was a really painful, difficult, um, upsetting record that led to towards um, more challenging circumstances for him and later, thankfully, like recovery and stuff. I just don't think it was in, in his interest at all. And um, yeah, I, I went I, I went from there and um, I looked at next projects and I was like, well, you know, my, my favourite Bowie record and the seminal one for me was um, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps from 1980, which isn't everyone's go-to, but if you look at it, it's 10 really consistent, really poppy, upbeat, powerful, energetic songs, full of invention, creativity, and sonically strong. And, you know, I love the what, what people like to call the Berlin Trilogy records, but they have that more abstract, instrumental harshness, once again, kind of like a musical austerity, you might call it, um, in that some of the songs just don't have lyrics. And um, I really love them, but this is one that like really just jumps out with you and it's something you just put on at a party. And it's heavy and it's intense and it's full of like Robert Fripp's like savage guitar. But it seems to deal so much with, once again, what a lot of people I think miss with David Bowie is really heavy, actually quite dark themes. And on this record in particular, there's a lot of pushes against like um, uh, authoritarianism in general. So I really love that about the album, that it's kind of moody, but it's really fun. Um, and it just, yeah, it's once again, it sounds great. Bowie and Tony Visconti producing and the Damn Trio playing, you know, two albums I really loved. And then when it came to Nick Cave, I couldn't necessarily pick an album. Uh, I thought, should I just write a book about Push the Sky Away? And I thought it's good, but it, it misses out a whole portion of the story. And it's very hard to talk about 
that album in isolation and then just touch upon the other ones. Yeah. So I tried to talk about the whole discography um, as an all-encompassing thing uh, and how the albums reflect back on one another because in many ways, Push the Sky Away, it's, it's a new sonic palette for Cave and I think it gave him a real creative resurgence um, that he didn't have to try and be rock and roll or dark or anything, but he naturally revisited key themes all across the music he'd been making for the past 20-ish years and had a really new, actually quite fresh perspective on them as an older, more experienced person, um, you know, settled into his family life in Brighton. So I loved that because I was, you know, I was like in my early 20s or something and it just really spoke to me in, in terms of, you know, its depth of feeling. And yeah, the, re the really interesting way it was produced and put together by the band. And same again with Skeleton Tree, you know. So I love that Cave had that really stark kind of second phase to his career. And what I think is impressive about it is that not many people have that. Right. Um, to some extent, Trent Reznor and Nine Nails, they've had that and they've, they've done like, especially the soundtracks, which I really fucking love. I think Nick Cave and Warren Ellis' soundtracks are fantastic. That's another part of the story. And Bowie had that in a sense when, you know, he came back and did the next day and especially Black Star, which everyone raved about i hope not just because it was the the semi posthumous record but um it was a really like striking vault fast and there's not many people that can do that and cave did it and has done it and he did it really well and it's almost like i feel like if he packed up tomorrow i, I would have utmost respect he doesn't he doesn't need to do another bad scenes record obviously if he feels he wants to you know i have no complaints but He's done so much good stuff and he's already done his um, his personal creative revolution with that kind of like loose trilogy of recent albums, you know? So do you have a favourite? Oh, yeah. Oh, you caught me out. I almost thought I got away with it too. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, off the cuff, um, Bowie, because I most consistently listen to David Bowie, um, especially when I'm writing other books, um, I most consistently listen to Bowie, particularly from like 72 to 1980. Stuff outside of that, I'm not a huge fan of. I don't have a, a crazy in-depth knowledge. You know, there's a lot to be said that like the records outside of it partly are resting upon the reputation of that, that sort of golden decade. But um, also that there's lots of different albums, and different tracks on there that I can put on at different times that really suit my mood, whether it's... Um, deep and melancholy or just fun you know ebullience so uh yeah it would have to be bowie um but excuse me all that being said nine inch nails and nick cave you know they give you something that bowie never could he was too good at um hits he was too good at not giving people what they want but but reinventing what people thought they might want in, in, in a sort of pop context. Like like Nick Cave couldn't produce a pop banger, I think, to save his life. And that's mm. and, and that's and same with um Trent Reznor to some extent, although closer comes uh very near. The, the, between the two of them, they couldn't necessarily do a hit hit to save themselves, but that's part of their saving grace. They they don't need yeah. to. They have these like amazingly consistent albums across these really big careers are really strong and really interesting and people love them for that and I guess that's what makes them genuinely alternative musicians whereas Bowie he had like um in 95 he had the one up 
one outside album, which I really love. It's one of my favorites. So that's a standout um, from the other things that he did. But yeah, I'm all about like um, the Berlin trilogy thing, Scary Monsters in 1980, um, Diamond Dogs in 74, um, you know, the amazing plastic soul experiment of like Young Americans in 75. And then you've got Station to Station, which is a crazy amalgam, like right in the middle of his career. So we will say it's like his best album, which I totally see, but it's so weird. And it's it's a bit like soul, but it's also so dark. And it has that strange thing that it's like six songs long, you know? Yeah, um, isn't that the album that he was so drugged out that he forgot making entirely? <laughs> is that the one? Yeah, pretty much. But there are photos. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, because we have the photos, we know it was he was definitely involved. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some scene. But I mean, yeah, the poor guy. Like, what can you say? It's like, don't worry, the album's great. Um, and he just sort of has to take our word for it, I suppose. I, I'm a, a big Bowie fan as well. Um, there's so much to him from being in films as an actor to his fashion sense to his um, crusading for Black artists to be on MTV. I mean, he's just had such um, an all-encompassing career and impact, I think, on pop culture that sets him apart. Yes. Yeah, I think you've nailed it, actually. He's, he's the compared to... It's it's not just that, you know, sales and sort of like um, uh, public standing, he's on a different level, is it? It's, it's that he he had a, a, an all-encompassing um, impact on the culture at large, whereas like millions of people will go and see um, Nine Inch Nails and Nick Cave. They love them, dedicated fans. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's tons of people. They'll sell out easily and they're consistently great musicians. But um, yes, you're right, like Bowie... Bowie's the guy that like um you know really kind of straddles everything but was weirdly unique and and crazy you know with it yeah definitely a one of a kind human being well I have to come to my last question here for you uh which is of course you're on the rock and roll nightmares podcast so I've (laughs) got to ask what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare (laughs) um does it have to be bad does it have to be dark (laughs) it can be be whatever it can be something funny or unusual or an actual dream you've had no do you know what I think um I'm so um as a you know as a writer of these books and stuff especially with these um these still living figures because Bowie Bowie felt easy because I was like (laughs) as much as I love him Bowie has passed on so I was like I felt a weight off me to kind of write a bit more freely yeah <laughs> just because I thought I couldn't upset him anymore if I said the wrong thing um so yeah I I, I think like my dreams and nightmares remain um exclusively rock star free um so that my work and you know private life don't cross over too much <laughs> although in saying that I recently went to see uh Queens of the Stone Age at the O2 Arena um in London and um so it's a big it's, I don't know if you call it a stadium it was very big uh-huh. Um, I was on the floor, so I kind of lost perspective. And it was really, really great. Um, I wrote a review of it. I'm not plugging the review. But the point is, um, I went along to review it. And um, I had, you know, I had plentiful beers. Um, I thought the occasion demanded it, because I don't go to gigs <laughs> that much. Either. And um, it was it was really fun. You know, I I, gen- I genuinely was dancing to songs, like, from, from all across the, yeah, from all across the albums. It's a really good set. And the band, like, I'd seen them play um, 
on television on live uh, Glastonbury uh, this summer. And they mm-hmm. were so good at Glastonbury. I was like, wow, it's one of those things that, that they're a band that actually has been around for a really long time. Comparable, comparable to like, um, you know, Nine Inch Nails. And, um, you know, seeing them there, I was like, wow, in context, this is incredible. Because playing things like um, Songs for the Dead from Songs for the Deaf album, um, which is 2002. And that's when they really, really jumped into the public stratosphere with um, No One Knows. But like it's 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 just like horribly catchy thing, and I don't love it. I kind of hate the song, but it made them really <laughs> successful, and that's a good album. And then they did more and more good albums, and were quite experimental and really dark and really edgy. So um, my rock and roll nightmare was actually um, that gig because I went in in a really good place, very merry, and I fucking loved it. And the support bands are very good, and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just go, you know, I'll, I'll go grab a beer. And I was like, right, steal yourself. It's a stadium. It's owned by O2, these multinational bastard corporations, telecommunication thing. You know, they're just here to sell your phones and whatnot. But stuff has to be sponsored by someone in order to have the nice gigs. And I was having a great time. And um, I went to the bar, if you can call it that. And I was like, what, what beer do you have? And they're like, we have one beer. And I was like, okay. It's like Nazi Germany. Uh, in right. Nazi Germany, that's a good beer. So that's, there's irony. <laughs> And I was like, what, what beer do you have? And like, Budweiser. It's like, okay. Now, I appreciate you're American, but like. No, I, I don't like delicate, that. <laughs> yeah, for my delicate European sensibility. Yeah. Um, we have Budweiser. Okay. I was like, it's not Budvar, like the Czech one, my partner is Czech, which is actually really good. Um, it's Budweiser. I was like, okay, um, a pint of that, please. Paper cup, fine. Paper cup, no one gets hurt. And I was like, how much is that? It's like £7.95. In dollars, I guess you're looking at like, I don't know. Ten dollars. Yeah, and it was a pint of Budweiser, so that was deeply offensive, and it didn't harsh my buzz. It didn't kill my gig. You know, I had a beer of a kind, um, but yeah, it was such a great fucking gig, and the O2 venue slightly ruined it. I actually had more of those, um, you know, seven ninety five terrible Budweisers. <laughs> the point is, the gig was fantastic, and I do remember. A large portion of it um, and the, the resonance and the experience will stay with me um, so that that's my rock and roll nightmare I don't know if that's I have not heard a story about Queens of the Stone Age ruined by a Budweiser so that's a good one <laughs> it's very it was, unique it definitely was ruined. honestly the gig was fantastic it was so <laughs> okay. good I was so happy my, my teenage self you know was was um yeah it was a brilliant because it was just it was just great um, and growing up with growing up with their albums from like um, being a kid in the band when I was 16, going to university and so on. Yeah, it's a massive deal for me. Um, and they were so good. I'd seen them in the past, but they were brilliantly tight. Where can people get your book and where can we find you online to <coughs> follow you? I'm online at uk. Um, bookshop wise I would recommend bookshop.org there's a UK and a US variant Uh Um, that's my that's my favorite site to go to it's quite cool they give um, money back to um, local bookshops and um, support like authors as well so it's a really good wholesome system Um, you know if people want to go to other outlets I totally get it it's fine but yeah bookshop.org really good really good website 
Good to know. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate you being on the show and uh, best of luck with the, your new book and future books. If you have any others, definitely you're welcome back to talk about them. Thank you very much, Stacey. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Wish my